What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to A Thousand Cuts. This is a BSA podcast. I'm your host, Demetrius. Here are my comrades and co-hosts, LaCase and Glenn. And we have our guest, Ted Rao from Sociocracy for All. Y'all say what's going on to the people. Hey, everybody. What's going on, folks? Hello. Yes, yes. And we are bringing y'all a really cool interview with our guest, Ted. And we are going to be talking about the concept of sociocracy, which is a different and unique type of model of governance. So Ted, before we really get into it, can you introduce yourself? Give us a little bit about yourself and the sort of work that you do. Sure. So I am German by the citizenship. I moved to the U.S. in 2010 for a job that I since left and a career that I since left. And I then decided to stay here because I liked it here in particular. I live in a community that I really like in Massachusetts. And what else? I have five kids. I work full-time on this disaccuracy stuff. That's what I awesome, do. Awesome. Awesome. That's dope. That is dope. So we're going to, let's not waste any time. Let's jump into let, let's jump into it and learn a bit about sociocracy. LaCase, do you want to lead us off with our initial questions? Absolutely. Let's jump right in. I am ready. So Ted, thank you for being here. Our first question, just for us, for our listeners, would you mind giving us a quick description of what sociocracy is, what does that mean? How does it work? So the idea of sociocracy really is that those who work together, decide together, that's really what it means. It's not the, the prettiest name, sociocracy, but it's a, really like a name that describes what it is. So those who associate together. And most people are familiar with other governance systems, like the democracy, obviously, but also, for example, whole group consensus, like let's say you have a group of 50 people and when there's a decision to be made, everybody gets into a room and makes a decision and everybody's happy with it. So sociocracy cuts things in a little bit of different way. And what it does is um, the decision-making method is consent. So a decision only moves forward and nobody's back, a little bit maybe here, I'm sure. The other one is who decides and what we do is we put people into small groups that we call circles, and each circle is in charge of something, like some part of the organization, let's say marketing or whatever it might be, membership. And then, for example, membership circle would make decisions about membership so that you have a system where really each of the circles does work around something like membership or say the marketing or whatever and they are then the decision makers on that so there's nobody above them that makes decisions for them or that can override their decisions so we put a lot of power into small groups of people and they make decisions by consent and whatever they're in charge of and then there's a few kind of techniques to improve things over time to make sure everything fits together but that really is the part and the essence of sociocracy all with the intention that we can have a governance system where we really have the people in power who are close to the work. So the people who are actually doing the thing, they decide about that thing, and not somebody who is three layers ahead of them or like above them, uh, really putting power and authority back into the hands of the people. Yeah, that's what it is. That's the short version of it. (laughs) Thank you. That's awesome. I like the idea that there are small pockets of power 
So I, I think the word you used was small groups with lots of power who know what they're talking about working together. That's one of the concepts that I really, I was really impressed by. Yeah, I really, I really like the comparison you made to the nervous system. What was it? The, was it the circulatory system? Sorry, I kind of was trying to read something for a second there. I got a little confused. But the, the comparison to the, you know, basically human nervous system and stuff, I think that's very interesting to think about it in a way that they can be autonomous, but then also relying on each other. Right, because that's, in a way, I love how all of the things that we do in our lives and we are with each other, like we are autonomous, right? We can choose what we do, and that's what I want. I want everybody to be able to choose what they do and so on. But we do interdepend, right? It's not that we're all like islands and everything that we do doesn't have impact on somebody else, right? We are social human beings, so everything we do, or most everything we do, will will have an impact on others. So we need to negotiate those things. And I really yeah, appreciate kind of that it represents, like it manifests, I want to say, maybe manifests that kind of autonomy and interdependence and alignment uh, dance that we all have to dance. And so it just basically reflects that in organizations because that's, that's also how things run, excuse me, run in an organization. So Ted, for the next question, what is the difference between, and maybe I can fuse some of the questions here. What is the difference between sociocracy and democracy? And what, in your opinion, are a few of the failures of modern democratic models that may necessitate a need for sociocratic models of governance? So I, I used to get into arguments uh, about that back in high school when I would argue that democracy, you know, we've all been told that democracy is not the best thing ever. And it was not really, I didn't get a lot of credit for criticizing democracy. And I totally get it, especially because I grew up in Germany, right? right? Like uh, democracy was what replaced fascism. And of course, democracy is way better than anything that's authoritarian, obviously. Yet. Democracy kind of has a really low bar in that you just need to win 51% of the votes, if even that. But kind of in, in this ideal case, 51% of the votes, and you get to have you win. And that to me is neither very visible or clear. We all get it clear, but I don't find it all, as I say, you know, depending on how your voting system is there. But so that's the first thing is we don't vote because voting always comes with issues, right? If you vote, especially if you vote for people that you'll never meet, you have no idea what they're actually like. You have, you're basically just making a bet. And another thing about majority vote just as a system is that it tends to polarize us, right? Because there we are. We have to make a decision. Do I vote for A or do I vote for B? And then the opinions of A or B kind of get polarized into this binary thing of, you know, you're either with us or against us. All of this polarization just happens even more if we ask the question that way, you know, is it A or is it B? And there's just so much in between. And just overall, by asking the question in a different way, what's the best that we can do given we are now? which is the typical question that we would ask in a sociocratic meeting, kind of where they can serve what we're trying to do. Yeah, all those, all the polarization just creates, creates so many issues and we don't see that in consent because we know, for example, that I can just be overruling everybody and just like bulldoze my way through things 
because it won't be rewarded because ultimately in order to serve in a role or to, to do whatever, get whatever proposal passed, I need consent from everybody. So I will go into a discussion knowing that I will need everybody's consent and I'd rather hear objections early so that I can deal with them, right? Instead of just going like, oh, whatever, as long as I'm getting elected, all is good because I don't even have to listen to the minority. So those are some of the differences and to me also the big failures of democratic models. And one key thing, and that gets a little complicated, so the two systems don't, are not so easy to completely compare because it's also the big question of who decides. And for example, a democracy, you have direct democracy, and you have the presentational system and so on. It's not a clear kind of comparison that we can draw. But overall, in a sociocratic system, as I said, you have so much authority in small groups and we nest them. So every child will have a parent circle, it will have sub-circles and so on. So it's all nested like a fractal system. But the parent circles, so to speak, can't overrule you just because they're higher. While in democracy, things tend to be kind of hierarchical. So that's another big difference. And so in a way, you have more power in a sociocratic system, but on a smaller piece of the pie. And that just decentralizes power a little bit more. You don't have this huge concentration of power that you see. So those are a few of the broad strokes. Another implication of that that's uh, somewhat subtle if you hear about it for the first time, but just the whole concept of having a small group makes things different. So you have a smaller group, like let's say eight people or even smaller groups that are in charge of a small piece of the organization. That means they will actually have first-hand knowledge about what the others are doing, right? Because they're working together on the same thing. So they know each other. And that way we can really build trust and be heard and so on. We all know if you have a large group of, let's say, 100 people, it's unlikely that everybody will be heard. And typically, it's the typically suspects that are going to be heard, right? That's just always how it goes down. So even if you think like, well, the most inclusive way of making a decision in a group of 100 is to put 100 people into the same room and say, let's talk and we're all equals. That's typically not how it plays out. What happens is that a few people speak and the rest is silent. Well, in a group of six, let's say, or seven or eight, especially if they use process that really make sure that everybody has the turn to speak, which is another thing that you do, you will really create kind of a psychologically safe environment where you can make sure people listen to each other and actually hear each other's ideas instead of going to these taglines that we see when somebody wants to office. For example. So that's kind of that. And Europe. Yeah, that's great. I love the part about how it helps to decentralize power and how it creates, you said it creates a sort of psychological safe space to where people don't you know, the voices of people who normally are not as, I don't know, normally maybe not as outgoing or just maybe weary of speaking a certain, you know, opinion or point of view that contradicts others or something like that. It promotes that sort of environment where they can feel like, you know, it's okay to say what I'm going to say is safe here. You, you know, it's actually inclusive. I really, I really, I really, really like that. That's, that's mm-hmm. beautiful. That's a very, it's very holistic, if I may. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the case, did you have anything to add? Oh, no. I, you know, as, you know, a woman who's been in lots of spaces, political or otherwise, oftentimes I felt like my voice is, I have to fight so hard to be heard. And then as a Black woman, I have to contend with, 
well, she's loud and all this stuff. So I am drawn to this model because I feel like it facilitates a way for people like me or people who oftentimes have to fight for their voices to be heard in a really, like you said, holistic way. So yeah, I very much want to continue learning about it. I think that's being able to make sure that more than one person or, you know, multiple people get to have their voices heard is so important when it comes to forward movement in our spaces. Absolutely. Absolutely. So different systems of governance tend to be tied to a specific political ideology. So what would you say, Ted, is the ideology, if any at all, that sociocracy is tied to? Well, the biggest one for me is everybody, like every voice matters. Mm. And it's really, I mean, it's coming kind of from a moral or like from an ethical point of view of, yeah, of course, we're all equals. Of course, that means everybody's voice matters. We can't live in a system where some people are shut out and some people are not being heard. So that's not only something that I don't want to have, right? But it's also not a smart idea because whenever you leave people out, it's going to make the system less resilient, right? Because you have this whole group of people that are not being heard. It's simply not a good idea. So basically, even if you don't give out the, all the other things, you have to see kind of that it's simply not a resilient way of organizing and not sustainable in the long run. So that's kind of one of the assumptions in it. The other one is that if you give people power, and everything they need, then they will be happy to contribute to stuff, right? If you build a system where people are trusted and they have what they need and they are on a cause that they really care about, they will make stuff happen, that's for sure. But our systems, like, for example, our businesses, where people are being micromanaged and forced to do stuff and controlled and all of that stuff, that's not a situation where people will kind of be at their best, right? We always perform according to the system that we're in. So those micromanaged systems are not going to get the best of you. Actually, what it does is that people try and cheat the system, obviously, because that's our response to that. So instead... Sociocracy builds the system that we feel, where we feel safe and where we listen, where we're trusted and where we have power, and then people really start living up to that. It's not without challenges at all, because some people have actually either never had the experience and have a hard time trusting, which makes a lot of sense. But yeah, I see that some people, especially it seems like the older people get, the more they have to unlearn to really get to that place again. I find that especially young people have a very easy time with it, but older people sometimes struggle because they have so many reasons of why this can never work. You know, when really I sometimes wonder if they're just in their own way there because they're used to so many things um, that don't have to be that way. And you don't have to control people. So, yeah, so th those are some of the roots. And actually, in that goes back to the, the well, that goes to the history of sociocracy. There were kind of several strands that came together. So the system itself was plugged together the way that we use it now, more or less, in the 1980s. And some of the strands came from Quakers, because the person who put it together, somebody in, in the Netherlands, Jared Edinburgh, he had been educated by Quakers as a young kid. He went to a Quaker school, and that's where he saw how decisions were made together. And then he became an engineer. So engineering is a big part of it, too. Like just basic things like if you want to do something, make a plan, carry it out, and see whether what you're doing is actually working. So just simple feedback loops of continuous improvement and so on. So those systems are built into sociocracy. 
yeah, and that I guess also goes back to the basic values of it. So Quakers, you know, really the very inclusive process and really hearing each other and hearing everybody and the engineering of really caring about good quality, really, of just because we're doing something, for example, as volunteers doesn't mean that we can do it well and that we shouldn't make good use of our time, actually. Sometimes I think it should be the opposite. If we do something with our valuable free time, it should even count more. So, yeah, being, being effective and yet not compromising on an egalitarian kind of way of doing things, that to me is what makes the service and then from a value set yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah. The reason I asked this question is because you just wanted to know whether or not sociocracy was, you know, tied to a specific like political ideology or if it was more of a neutral tool, because sometimes in the political realm, it can be that way in which someone proposes a particular sort of strategy or tactic or something like that. And sometimes it can be viewed as being specifically tied to leftist ideas, you know, or something like that, like UBI, right? Universal basic income or even stuff like direct democracy, right? It's always tied to leftism. But in reality, these things are actually neutral. And so the oppressive and reactionary and fascistic, you know, right-wing forces could, could use the very same strategies and tactics. But I feel like with sociocracy, like the intentional creation of safe spaces is not something that right-wingers are really looking to do, right? Yeah, I remember once, I mean, typically, the like, typical audience will be lefties. But I remember once somebody who applied to be in a training with us, and he said he was looking for a governance system that was, for example, this is aligned with the New Testament. And I asked him what he meant, and I absolutely loved what he said, you know. So I agree with you that, to be honest, for me, coming from Europe, I struggle sometimes just with how arbitrary it is, as you're saying, right, of what is kind of aligned with the left and what is aligned with the right. It doesn't fully make sense to me. A lot of this is just the way because it is here. Yeah? And because people accept it as that, but when we come from the outside, it doesn't really add up to me. So sometimes I struggle to just read the code, honestly, because it is not as obvious if you come from the outside. Anyway, but that was for me yet another example of, wow, you know, well, I look at it from a lefty perspective, one can also see it in somebody in a different way. And who am I to say that's not the right way to look at it? I just found it really interesting and also really sweet. So it was yeah, I wonder about all of these things. I guess I don't have a really good answer to how kind of political it is. From the value set, one of the things we want to ask, that is, I don't know, I struggle with that. You know, maybe it is the closest to anarchism. I mean, the whole idea of, you know, we don't need a top layer of, like, we can do things ourselves, kind of more from a bottom-up kind of approach. That is maybe what it's the closest to. But then again, I've noticed that people come from their own background and discover sociocracy and they kind of incorporate it into who they are and what they care about. Maybe it is fairly neutral. I don't know. I, I'm undecided on that. What are you guys thinking? Yeah, that's. I would say that's kind of hard to say because yeah, it does seem like it has a bit of neutrality too, but it also does seem like it has a bottom-up kind of lateral aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I understand about it so far. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't, it's a little hard to pin down. I just mm. know that it sounds awesome, <laughs> as glib as that statement was. No, yeah, it's, I don't know, it feels 
very radical. Yeah, I could, I could. Yeah, I'm still approaching it from that lefty perspective because I'm just really seeing the like in the space of a sort of like worker cooperative, right? That sort of like direct democratic model, but it also is based upon sociocracy. I could see how that could like definitely fit into, again, the sort of like worker cooperative sort of space and yeah, in any sort of political organization. But to me, even though it does seem neutral, it really does seem to be something that really flies in the face of more right wing or more authoritarian approaches to things, which favors centralization, which favors hierarchy, which, again, doesn't necessarily promote everyone having an equal voice. It is inherently anti-democratic, right? It doesn't necessarily promote consent, but rather decision-making being left at the hands of those who are at the top of the food chain, so to speak. So in a way, I could, I would definitely see more people on the sort of left or people who have more of an egalitarian worldview in general, be it political or spiritual, like you were saying with that person that you spoke with, I do see it leaning more on the sort of like more communal, egalitarian sort of left thing. You know, if you went to a freaking Republican convention, I highly doubt that they, you know, that this would be a model. I, I doubt that they would even want to try out a new model of governance other than, you know, going back to like fucking feudalism. You know, going back to fucking feudalism <laughs> or, or the, the divine right of kings. I mean, we'll go back, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Prima noctra. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that great. would play very well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for letting me get a medieval joke in. I appreciate that. <laughs> Yo, our resident medievalist, dog. We got to We got to We got to We going to slip Boom. something. Boom. We going to slip <laughs> something. got to get one in there. Sorry. Because <laughs> that's what they're trying to take us, take us back to and shit. Precisely. Ugh. It's ridiculous. So for the next question, just can you give us a bit of a rundown of what is the history of sociocracy? What are its origins? What are some of the principal figures and how did it develop historically? So, yeah, I mean, most of that, I guess, I've already mentioned earlier. So the Jared Enberg really is the key person who went to this Quaker school engineer and then introduced or developed the company and yeah really refining it there and then from then on it was especially used in schools in the beginning interestingly so there's some schools in the netherlands that have been running like that for a long time and i feel like a lot has happened in the last few years and that really have gained much more acceptance and people are just so hungry for alternatives and so tired of the hierarchical um, organizations and all that comes with that. So I, you know, if people come to us and we ask them, how did you, how did you find sociocracy? And they say, I don't know, I guess I was just frustrated and I was Googling, you know, Googling alternative, like alternatives to like this and that governance, such as like better governance systems or whatever they might be Googling to find it. So, yeah, as you're saying, worker co-ops are very common and that they might have heard about specifically schools, what did I say, nonprofits, some businesses, though I have some skepticism about that one, actually, because there's some things around how does sociocracy equal, like shared power, how does it work with ownership models? So really, the best version is kind of um, like a worker co-op and ownership is also shared. Communities like the community that I live in with my 70 neighbors, we use sociocracy and that's actually fairly common in communities because they tend to have 
just historically, they tend to have a very egalitarian frame and very much uh, into self-governance communities. So that's, yeah, those are, those are big ones. Let's see, is there more to say on this one? Yeah, it's now really also used, I mean, there's a lot in the US and Canada, there's a lot in Latin America and Europe, some in Australia, some in Asia, some in Africa. So it is it is kind of all over the world, but the strongest really in North America, South America, and Europe. That's just, um, it's good. If you want to hear anything about, like, if you want to take a, take a deeper dive into one of those topics, but that kind of covers it. Absolutely. Can you talk about a bit about what you said that sociocracy is actually implemented in the community that you live in? Talk about what that's like a little bit and, you know, give us a little bit of insight into that, because I think for a lot of us on the left, we're very much advocating like community organizing and, and creating like community councils and organizing the block and stuff like that. Talk about what that's been like. So the situation here, it's 70 or 80 people. Most of us live together. Some people live off campus with their members. And so we, we yeah, there's the land. So there's basically four main groups, like four main circles, right? And we had said a circle is kind of in charge, has authority over a certain piece of the work. So we have four main circles. One is taking care of the plants and animals and gardens, so landscape and so on. So, for example, recently we got lambs and that needed to get approval from that group. Then another circle is buildings and grounds, we call it. They do the roads and take care of the houses, like figure out which houses need to get painted, which houses need roofing and so on. Snow plowing here in the Northeast as well. Then let's see what's next. Common house circle. We have one community building that's pretty awesome and we have meals there together. So one group is just taking care of everything that's kind of in that big shared resource. And then we have one circle that's community life, which I'm a part of. And that's all the interpersonal things, kind of everything else that has to do with, more with people than with the brick and mortar stuff. So for example, conflict resolution is in our domain and membership and like rules around pets or yeah, when there's yeah, things like that, or parties. And so as I said, those groups are fully in charge of their piece. So for example, for COVID, when the common house policies around that, those are things that are now decided by common house circle and so on. So they, the group of, I don't know, maybe about five people, they decide about that, what happens in that building and who gets to use what. Of course, they will do that with a lot of feedback, right? So they don't just walk around and take one of the rooms and make it into something completely different or lock the common house and say, bye, everybody. But what they do is they make decisions kind of really in the spirit of serving everybody, right? So, for example, when they, I don't know, when they make a big change, for example, to our community meals, they will run a little survey and ask people like, hey, what do you think? How many meals a week should we have? And what would you like to improve about them? And so on. So they are the point people for that. But it's not that that means that they decide without asking anybody. But after they've listened and really done whatever they need to do to get the information so that things really are aligned with what people are thinking in the community, then they are the people who kind of put it together into agreements and so on. So those four circles then have sub-circles. Like, for example, for us, I'm in community life, right? And we have a sub-circle for fun. We have a sub-circle for membership. So I don't make decisions about membership, right? Although I'm kind of in the parent circle to membership circle. 
So, but membership circle makes those decisions. And then we have somebody from membership circle on our team so that we know what's happening. And the same applies for the other ones too. The same for conflict resolution, for example. So we have to have two people that actually are in both so that we really can bring information from what we're talking about into the conflict resolution circle and from there to us so that everybody's on the same page. So that's how it works. We do have people often wonder about that. So it's, most of the decision-making happens in small groups. And then sometimes people wonder, yeah, but what about the plenary? What about the everybody meeting? What about the all-member kind of thing? And we do have those meetings. We actually meet once a month. Everybody who has time, let's say on a Saturday morning or Sunday afternoon or whatever it might be, we switch around so that everybody can make it from time to time. And during those meetings, what we do is we talk to each other. We talk to each other in small groups and we might shuffle them a little so that everybody gets to talk to all kinds of people, just really to have a sense of connection and really how your neighbor is doing. And sometimes you might have a circle that comes and asks that all member meeting, hey, we want some input on the chairs of the common house. You know, do you think we can still keep them or are they really falling apart right now? Like, what do you think? And then we can have like a whole conversation, right, with small groups, large groups, whatever it might be. But then that's a way to get the information into common house circles so they can make the decision. So it's kind of a sounding board more than anything else, place for connections. Sometimes we learn stuff together. Sometimes we just hang out and have fun and tell each other life stories and so on. So the all-member meetings are still kind of a key piece of the community life, but they are not decision-making meetings. So the 60 of us don't have to struggle to approve a proposal. We, that is all outsourced into those smaller circles and we get to really hang out and do what's easier to do in large groups. So that's a little bit of the lay of the land, I guess. And then there's another thing that I haven't said yet is, so those four circles, the four main circles with each of their sub-circles, the way they all get connected is because two from each of those circles form what we call the coordinating circle. And so circles, that's called the general circle, but people call it whatever they want to call it. So here it's called coordinating circle. And those eight people, so two plus two plus two plus two, plus two, <laughs> no, so eight people, they meet about once a month just to make sure that everything is kind of taken care of. Not as a like overall bosses, but more just to make sure, like does every circle have what they need? Is there anything that somebody wants to flag for their own member meeting or... Does anybody need help? Or sometimes it happens that there is a topic that needs to be decided that doesn't neatly fit into one of those four boxes. It's neither plants or animals, nor is it common house, nor is it kind of community life, nor is it whatever the fourth one is that I forgot now. So what do you do? Who decides, right? Because then we don't have a place for it. And so we don't know where it gets decided. And that's when something like the general circle, that kind of hub in the middle, kicks into action, and then the eight of them decide who's going to decide it. And we recently had an example about that. That was actually kind of a neat illustration. So during COVID, so we have a ping pong table on the property. And the ping pong table was, I think, bought by Common House. So I had always thought Common House Circle was in charge of it. But then during COVID, remember in the very beginning when we weren't sure whether touching stuff would like heavily spread COVID. So that was at yeah. the very beginning yeah. of this discussion. So now it's very different. But then somebody needed to decide, do we still play ping pong or not? Like, what is our community agreement on that one? And somebody needed to decide it. And then Common House Circle said, well, the, the ping pong table is outside. It's definitely not us. We don't decide this. 
and buildings and grounds said, yeah, but just because we take care of the road underneath the ping pong table doesn't mean it's us. Community life was like, well, we never bought this ping pong table, so we're not deciding on this. And the garden people, of course, weren't even asked because that was obvious that it wouldn't be them. So then that question came to that central committee with the question of who now takes care of this. And then we decided there by consent who would take care of it and make sure that it has a place where it gets decided. And I really always like that, that it's kind of not an overarching decision. So the, the coordinating circle did not decide whether the ping pong table should still be in use, but they only decided which of the circles is going to be empowered to make that decision. So it's kind of a meta function. It's not the overall bosses. It's just the people that make sure that everything has a place so that we don't get stuck because nobody knows who designs. So that's kind of the one extra piece that one needs to see so one understands how sociopathy deals with that distribution of authority. I love that. It really reminds me of, Glenn, I know you speak to this a little bit as well. It really reminds me of like a libertarian municipalist sort of model, but on a literal micro level, like down to a real relational level, not just like an overall broader political thing in terms of like municipalities and stuff like that but within people's own relations with one another and how, like you said, the power is decentralized, but at the same time, there's this real sort of beautiful interdependence, a dispersal of power and responsibility. But at the same time, there's still that accountability there. That's what it brings to mind. I just had a, a small question on that subject, just because you mentioned in your community, I think you said it's like 70, 80 people, maybe I misheard. But I was just curious, do you know of any other communities that are utilizing the sociocracy model that may be a larger scale, just to give an example of existing formations that could be referenced to show the potential for it at scale? Well, it really depends on what depth of it you want. Sociocracy Fraud, the organization that I co-founded with 160 people or so, but with remote organizations, so that's, again, a little different, I guess. Mm -hmm. There is a project in India that I find absolutely mind-boggling and inspiring. They have hundreds of thousands of people. But what they do is these are neighborhood parliaments, so that's also a super fascinating model. They mm. organize people into neighborhoods, and then they kind of link people into the next higher level and then to district level and so on. They go up to the national level with, I think, 11 layers. And they use sociocracy to select those different roles. But it's a little bit of a tweak of the system, but they do like the whole scale stuff. And as I said, hundreds of thousands of people in this kind of system. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really fascinating. But yeah, so again, that's like organizing by neighborhood and so on. So that's very different from, let's say, a nonprofit or very different from a business or a school, right? So those are all very different profiles. It's really hard to make good comparisons there because so far they're all a little bit standalones. Yeah, absolutely. I understand what you're saying because, you know, the different dynamics that come with each and how they organize and connect with one another. We haven't heard from the case for a while. Yeah, I was uh, sorry. I was I, <laughs> I have a delay, so I was trying to wait to make sure I didn't speak over Glenn. But just actually going to piggyback off Glenn. As someone who is friends with and works really closely with organizers, specifically union organizers, oftentimes they encounter people who, for whatever reason, will join organizations and will stonewall or mm. can be, be quite difficult. So I'm just curious, in a system like this where consent is what you're after, how do you navigate people who may, say never want to consent or it's like you're going around in circles over an issue? How do you combat that or how do you confront that? 
Well, first of all, it's all there's kind of a mix of a lot of small factors here. One of them is so who's in a circle, right? Because only the people in the circle can object, right? Like for example, if I'm not a membership circle, I can't undo their decisions. So I can be heard then, we can make sure that I'm heard and so on, but they are the ultimate decision because that's what it means, right? So that sometimes is kind of a hard one to swallow for people because some people, especially those that tend to make life a little hard in organizations, are the people who want to have a say on each and everything that gets decided anywhere by anybody. And that is not a thing in sociocracy, right? If the power is in a circle, that means that's where it is. And so then we have to look at who is in a circle. And typically the people who are in a circle are the people who are doing work in that area. So like the people on conflict resolution circle are the people who mediate and so on. So if they make a decision about what kind of workflow or whatever the, the processes are for mediation, they decide that together for their work. So if you have that kind of system, it's very unlikely that somebody's just going to dig their heels because they have a shared thing that they're doing. Those dynamics that somebody blocks everything typically happens where you don't have that direct match between doing the work and making decisions. It's typically that people who are kind of tangentially involved, but very opinionated, slow things down. But that you don't have as much in a sociocratic system because you only have the people in the circle that do things. So that's one of the factors. But of course, you can still have that person in your circle. And then what happens is, first of all, some of the edge is taken off, I want to say, because we already listen from the beginning. That's one thing. So just with smaller groups, as I said, you have those better processes. For example, one of them is just talking one by one by one rounds, we call that. So that's not a super unique for sociocracy kind of thing, but it really works in making sure that people speak, right? And that way you don't breathe that resentment that sometimes can be underneath that kind of behavior as much, at least. Then again, I've seen that some people have been screwed over so often in their life that even in the, under best circumstances, if they're really deeply involved and they've been really well listened to and you have a healthy group dynamic and still somebody digs their heels and they're not able to find any solution. And that's really hard. And that's why we always say you have to combine it with some sort of conflict resolution and so on. Like you have to have these resources in-house so that you can really self-manage because that kind of stuff won't happen. There are some really smart ways of integrating objections in sociocracy. For example, one very simple thing that's mind-blowing and it's almost ridiculously easy, but it helps so much is when somebody wants to not consent, so object to a decision. Sometimes what we do is we just say, okay, so you don't consent. Are you willing to give it three months? So I see that you don't think this is a good idea, but what's the time frame for which we can try this out? And even if somebody is heavily against something, sometimes they're willing to give it a few weeks. And then you talk again in a few weeks. And I've just seen it so often that people originally are very much against something. And then you find a deal that they say, okay, fine, I'm willing to give it, you know, like whatever, a month. And after a month, you check in with them and they're like, oh, actually, this was totally fine. It's great. We can just continue. I've had it so many times. So overall, I guess the broad view is there's just so many things we have to learn, right? There's meeting facilitation, listening the first time, conflict resolution, being able to just let things go that are not decided by the group that you're in, or giving good quality feedback in a way so that you'll be heard, right? So all those skills kind of click into one another. 
so that you have a system that rewards more healthy behavior, right? Instead of hitting your head against the wall again and again. So for many of those things, there isn't one answer. It's kind of, you have to create an ecosystem where those things flow a little bit better and also people step up more into behaviors that are a little easier to have in a group. So yeah, it's just this whole mix of things. And that's sometimes hard to explain. And I guess I always wonder how, when you hear it for the first time, how realistic it sounds, I guess. But in my experience, in those two organizations that I spend the most time in, it really works well. And if there is really a big conflict that you can't resolve, you might have some agreements on what happens next. Like, what's your fallback? For example, in my community, we have an appeal process that there's some elaborate rule of if a circle designs something that you absolutely hate and you have to do something against it, there's kind of an, like a level of escalation that is there. Like first you should go to the circle, then you go to something like your parent circle, for example, and like all kinds of steps, you know, mediation, blah, 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 and so on. And then the last thing you can do is have two other households join you and then you can formally appear. And then I don't even remember what happens because the funny thing is we have not used this a single time. There have been things that happened, you know, people aren't always happy with everything. But we've always resolved it before it escalated into this really destructive place, right? Where you undo a circus decision and then you have to struggle with now who's the referee here? Who decides ultimately? So we've always been able to keep it local and really keep it in the group and put resources in the group so that it doesn't escalate to that level because then it harms relationships so much. And then it's just so much work to repair. So... Yeah, that's not something to easily act on. I'm aware of that. And yet that's what I think is the truth. And that's really where we need to go. Thank you for that, Ted. That was, yeah, I really like that answer because it definitely got into a lot of the nuance, but still gave a nice general overview of the ways in which we apply it. I had a question with regards to sociocracy and our current conditions regards to ecological collapse and all the different things we're seeing in that realm, such as the fires in Canada and stuff. And mm-hmm. also just with regards to people becoming more and more disillusioned with the current existing systems of capitalism and such, and becoming more interested in things like socialism. As someone who's, you know, you've helped co-found Sociocracy for All, and you're also, you know, obviously very attuned to people who are engaging in that form of organizing, such as the project you mentioned in India. Are you seeing an increase in interest for the concept of sociocracy uh, like in different realms of society? And if so, could you kind of give a broad overview illustration of what that looks like? Yes, we do see an increase. And I think the most, I guess what I'm seeing is just that people are more desperate and more willing to even consider something that's a little bit more radical, which is so dumb, right? Like, and Typically what happens, like the typical person that comes into our training so as a member in, in Sociocracy for All will be somebody who tried something and, and it failed. And then they tried another thing and then it failed. And those could be years of doing something. And then they often fall into deep despair and think like, what have I been missing? What was it that, why did this fail again? And then some of them at least connect the dots and go like, oh, both times it was governance that was a huge contribution. Because governance is interesting. Governance is invisible, right? Because good governance, I always say, is quiet. Like, for example, sometimes we have people who want to visit either sociocracy for all or our community. Like we have, you know, sort of, I sometimes call them sociocracy tourists. They come here and want to see a meeting. And 
I then tell them, you can, you're welcome to do that. But just so you know, there isn't much to see because what you see is a drama-free meeting. That's not very interesting because governance, if it works, it's just, it just means people do stuff. There's not much to observe there. At least from where I sit, I guess that's just ordinary. You see ordinary, right? So where was I going with this? So governance has become more something that people pay attention to. Typically what happened before is when something didn't go well, for example, if it's not clear who decides in an organization, okay, often what happens is either there's kind of a power grab because somebody goes into the vacuum and, and just makes things happen, and then there's outrage, or nobody does anything because nobody knows who to ask or whatever. Those are very typical kind of situations. If now you look at that and you're not aware of governance, like you don't wear the governance lens, then you think, oh, those, you know, they're all like whatever, you know, lazy, they don't do stuff or whatever, you know, they're not engaged or whatever it might be that you're telling yourself. So you kind of attach it to people and the traits. You don't go, oh, this is how people behave if the governance system doesn't make it clear who decides. Or if you have the power grab, you say, oh, that's an asshole. That person is like ego driven and so on, but you don't see, oh, this power vacuum contributed to somebody who was the most comfortable with that kind of behavior of going and doing it. So what I'm saying is when you add governance to something, like if you put on the governance lens, so many more things become clear because they always play out in similar ways and the patterns, you start recognizing the patterns and more and more people get there. They, the governance is becoming more visible to them I think more and more people wear that governance lens. And that's awesome because that means now we can talk about those things instead of walking around telling people that they're whatever, that it's their fault. Because I think really a lot of it has to do with the systems in which we perform. So, yeah, so that's what we see. And then plus just huge despair, as you were saying, with ecological collapse and all of that. And I sometimes, you know, that's super cynical, but I am really in a pretty desperate state on that myself right now. You know, self-governance is something that we need now, but we will also need it post-collapse. So whatever your view of the future is, whatever you think is going to happen, you will need a way to organize yourself with others. So unless you think the current system is just going to last forever and only some people will need governance, then you can just lean back and see what happens. But other than that, we'll all have to learn something. Yeah, the only one thing is, I guess, and but maybe that's the thing, I'm not sure how... Because some of those things are so radical, as you were saying, right? It's such a radical system because common sense is so radical. And for example, then the kind of the limitations or the constraints that we have really have to do with, for example, the legal system hates decentralization. They want to know who's in charge and who's responsible. Or the financial system, this is like shared stuff, right? Like it's just the proprietary, like, yeah, just private property and all of that, it's not really compatible with the way how we want to do things. The legal system, does. there's always a little bit of workarounds that we have to do. It just doesn't fit well into the systems that are set up. And that's frustrating me more and more and also other people. So I'm yeah, obviously not alone with that. So it's good that the ecosystem of sociocracy is kind of broadening into really, I guess, I don't know, cast a wider net of what all the things are just to change organizations and not even beyond that. So, I don't know, that was a whole big kind of lob of response. I have no idea what you want to do next. <laughs> no, I think you actually kind of hit it on the head. You, you kind of went into, I think, the aspects of it that I was trying to get at. 
but regards to, like you said, you know, ultimately, if you have a system that is actually effective, it's going to lead you to a position where you're just going to run in the background. It's going to be like operating, like your operating system on your computer. You don't really pay a lot of attention to it. You just know it should work a certain way and you only check it if it starts to give you issues, right? So same with this in Canada to feed into, or I guess to build off of that last question, as someone who co-founded Sociography for All, I'm just curious, what was that process like in incorporating the framework to the organization that you helped to build? So I joined my now partner. He was starting, he was doing sociocracy consulting much longer than I had, but it was consulting. And he was always unhappy with that. He's been an activist all his life. And yeah, he was not happy with just consulting with organizations because it seemed like, hold on, why would we support the organizations that can afford a consultant? You know, shouldn't this even more be in the hands of the people who can't afford a consultant? So we were thinking, okay, we, we should do this completely different. And that's also why we called it Sociocracy for All. It was kind of the counter reaction to this kind of elitist kind of view on these fancy governance methods. We said, no, like, hold on, this is so important. We think everybody should have access to it. Everybody who wants to, obviously. I do not walk around telling people that's the only thing they can do or the best thing or whatever. I just say, this is pretty good. You know, I don't want to go hide it. I want to go share it. So that's what we did. And then we started producing videos and putting them online and articles and so on. Because when we started, there wasn't so much out there, actually. Although the system had been around, but not publicly available so much. So that's what we did. And then uh, we started doing training and all of that. And then some people that, quite a few people actually, that were in our training were like, I want to join. And first, we didn't quite even know what they meant because we didn't know what they wanted to join. But they had kind of already perceived like the organization, like it became like a, almost like a person on its own, like a being on its own. And they knew they wanted to join. So we turned it into a membership organization that itself obviously is run sociocratically. So we have one circle that is producing content and it has sub-circles like for social media stuff and for training and for just content production like articles and books and so on. And then we have one circle that is doing membership and membership development and finances and all of that. We have one circle that is helping the international community. We do a lot of translation into Spanish and so on, uh, other languages too. So all the people who have energy around translation or that want to see things happen in their own country, they get support there with a bunch of sub-circles. And then we have one circle that is, we call it ecosystem circle. It's the circle where people get together who want to focus on sociocracy in one particular sector. For example, sociocracy in schools, we have a circle for that. Sociocracy and activism, we have a circle for that and so on. And yeah, so that's the basic setup of Sociocracy for All. As I said, about 160 people, and I don't even know how many circles. It must be many. It's like, I don't know, 30 something circles. I'm guessing I should go count. The cool thing is so I'm leader of the general circle and what would be the counterpart of an executive director. The fun thing is that because it's so decentralized, I never fully know what's actually really happening in all those different circles, right? They might be hiring somebody and I wouldn't even know. Or they might form two sub-circuits and I would hear about it weeks later if I look at the drawing and they updated it. So that's really fascinating, just the level of decentralization of it. And I, yeah, I do a lot of external contact. That's why I'm here. And yeah, because I'm the person who's most comfortable among staff to do those things. So it's always, you know, Ted is being sent to these things. I don't know. What else about it? What led you to ask that question? I just started, but what led you to ask that? Well, for me personally, uh, I'm also, uh, as we spoke briefly before, 
I formed the organization myself. It's newly formed. We started it last year, and we're definitely trying to be really intentional with how we organize in a non-hierarchical, lateral sense. And so I'm always curious for details about how other formations that are also trying to move as such, how they manage themselves and how they came to be and how they came to find their sense of being able to work together and stuff like that. So. Right. And that's actually, let me mention that real quick. Can I do that? Can I mention a book of mine real quick? Because there is, it's called Who Decides Who Decides? And it's actually exactly about the problem that you're describing. Mm-hmm. Because I've just seen it so, so, so many times and it's disheartening. And that is that people say, oh, we want to be equals and not lose that kind of sense of equality between us. So, but then it's not quite clear how you get started, I guess, right? Because there are different models. Either you have one person who kind of is the driving force and then kind of a leader kind of person. And then it's unclear how you get that into a horizontal organizing, but you also need somebody to drive, like, you need people to move things forward, right? So who legitimizes that person and so on? So those are, and then, so either, again, there's some people who just go do, or then there's the people who wait and see. And most of us have a really toxic relationship with power. So they're either kind of holding back or they're overstepping, but it's really hard to hit that balance because we haven't seen it much around us. So what I did in that little booklet was just to go like step by step of like, okay, first define what you're doing and decide that by consent. So somebody who might be the founder, if it's one person, might suggest and propose the aim, the shared kind of purpose of what you're doing. But as soon as you accept it by consent, it's now becoming a shared thing. So in your very first meeting, you're already basically spreading out that power and sharing it with other people. But that has to be explicit, right? Consent has to be explicit. It's not something you can just assume, right? Because saying nothing doesn't mean yes. So it's the practice of being super intentional, as you're saying, super intentional about it and really going through those steps of how do you get to a place that you have some infrastructure without one person just declaring that it's so. Yeah, so one of the steps is kind of defining your aim and then also defining who the members are and so on and what your decision-making method is. Because if you don't have a decision-making method, once you have, let's say, 20 people, it's going to be impossible to retroactively decide what your decision-making method is because who's going to decide what the decision-making method is and by what decision-making method are you going to decide what your decision-making method is? And then people, it gets so abstract and people then don't know what to do. And I've seen so many organizations fall apart because of that very problem. So I think that will still happen a lot, but now at least I know that it's written down and I can point people somewhere because I think it's a very healthy, sane way of doing it, how I'm describing it, if people are willing to do it. Because sometimes they say, oh, whatever, we'll need governance when we're 100 people and until then we'll just wing it. But I don't see that working, actually. So I hope that's going to change because I had this group once that approached me and said, we all know that we want to run things socratically, but we don't know who decides that. And although they all wanted it, they somehow never really came through. That group fell apart. And it's really, when you look at it, a really sad, disheartening, and a little bit silly reason to fall apart just because you didn't know how to decide who decides how you decide. I don't know. It just really gets complicated. Yeah, no, I think that that's definitely an aspect of it that I'm concerned with. So far, the organization I've formed with some folks have it's been pretty resilient, but yeah, it was like getting to that space. Like you said, making those adjustments from 
being the person who proposed the idea to distributing the power to actuate those ideas to a collective, you know, it was all a process of figuring out what would be the, you know, the best channels and best uh, systems that we could deploy for our means was definitely a process. And I would say now we're at a good place, but I'm always looking for ways to revise and refine and enhance our ability to operate in a really autonomous and still very collective sense where we can all be working together, but also have the ability to come and go and be kind of fluid with our organizing. LaCase, did you have a question? Oh, yeah. This might be a ridiculous question, but just hearing, Ted, you talking about that situation with the group that fell apart, I'm just kind of wondering, do you think this is a system that really can work for everybody? Or do you think it takes a specific kind of person to be able to work within this system? Well, let me, I don't know, I guess it's, that's a little bit like the political question. Is it on the political left or right and so on? Because I feel so torn about it. So one of the things is that I notice kind of the obvious things of, okay, people who are good listeners are going to have an easier time than the people who think the only valid way of looking at things is their own. Then people who want to have a say on everything are going to have a hard time because you will not have a say on every single thing that is decided anywhere. So, yes, those are some of the things. And we see that, for example, just in also in communities and so on, and you have people who are just just worried, worried about a group that doesn't include them making decisions on matters that affect them. And I get that. I get that. But I simply don't think that it's viable to be a decision maker on everything. It just leads to superficial decisions. So I guess, I don't know. So in terms of people, those are some of the traits. I feel very torn about the question of just how much does it kind of prescribe a culture? So for example, as I said, we talk in rounds, right? So people talk one by one by one by one, and you don't interrupt. But I've had people tell me, oh, interrupting people is part of my culture. And I really don't know what I think about that one. Like, is this just within everybody's kind of, yeah, is this a style question or is this a culture question or is this just something that some people are willing to accept? I don't know. I know that I've really walked away from, well, I've kind of weaned my, no, how do I say that? What I consider normal has shifted, I guess is what I want to say. In, for example, being interrupted, I'm really surprised when I get interrupted now in everyday situations because it hardly ever happens in my life anymore and I just find it really rude and I tend to not interrupt other people yeah but could you have a respectful safe culture where people interrupt each other and nobody minds then I guess fine but yeah I guess there's a little bit of worry in me about that one who gets to draw that line so I really simply don't know So maybe I assume it's not for everybody, but I haven't been convinced yet that there are real deal breakers where I don't have a little bit of a feeling that it's a little bit like a, when it's an argument that somebody's really making to cover up something else. So there's a, yeah, I don't know. That gets maybe a little bit too sticky. I'll stop here. All right. Thank you. I, yeah, I'm just curious about that. I, I wouldn't say that my culture is interrupting people, but like growing up in a household where everyone's talking at once, just the idea of taking one by one, everyone speaking sounds wonderful and foreign to me, but it's the best way to be heard. Yeah. So I I just wondered about that because I think I'd be one of those people who is a bit anxious about not having some understanding about what other groups are doing. That sounds bad. Let me rephrase that. 
I'm not that nosy. I guess what I'm saying is our system gives us like this, we have this fallacy that we're involved in everything. You know what I mean? We think that we understand what's going on, but we really don't. So maybe it's about breaking that barrier and accepting that we really don't have our hands in everything. I don't know. It's an interesting concept for me to wrap my head around. Right. And one thing I would add is, you know, I mean, I live, you know, in a household with seven people. So there's a lot of talking at the same time. And I like that it's lively and all, but I wouldn't want to make decisions that way. I think maybe that's where I would draw the line. Yeah, then it just gets stressful because then it does really compromise listening, doesn't it? So I don't know. But then I noticed I had this eye-opening moment once. It was like one of those form, you know, how there's like formative moments where you really learn like the lesson more deeply than other times. And we were a group of, I think, four that were in a heated discussion about something. It was not a meeting, so people were talking over each other, except for this one person. That then, after maybe 45 minutes of us interrupting each other happily, others more than me, but then this one person who had not said a single word the entire time said, excuse me, could we do rounds because I have things I want to say, but I don't want to be forced to interrupt you, so it's not working for me. So what I'm saying is, I guess, what I learned in that moment was, first of all, if there's no process in place, I'm going to violate this myself, right? So I'm not a better person, right? The system helps me be a better person, but I'm not, I don't come like that, you know? And the other one is that those kind of organic ways of talking, they have drawbacks that we're not really honest about, you know? If somebody pushes kind of their culture of interrupting people, I'm not, I don't mean you, at thinking of somebody else who was very much kind of advocating for culture where we interrupt each other like yeah but that's not going to work for everybody either so how are we going to negotiate that and yeah and that's kind of the hard thing about i guess spaces outside of meetings because it's unclear how we make those agreements and how yeah maybe we're kind of in an agreement free realm right because we're just chatting with somebody and that's yeah that's tricky so not sure. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. I guess to to kind of piggyback off of what LaCase asked here in terms of people's personality types, I'm just thinking in terms of how people living under different sorts of systems and structures and ways of life and stuff like that, how they can be changed and transformed. Have you seen examples of that, Ted, in, in your own experience where maybe someone who isn't used to living under sociocracy like most people have gone into a sociocratic system and there has been a sort of change maybe in their character or personality from living in a more decentralized more egalitarian system and not only have you seen it with an individual person but have you also seen that in terms of just like the broader sort of like relationships within a sociocratic system, people or families or friends or partners or whomever who live under a sociocratic or or work on a sociocratic system, it just changes those relationship dynamics. I'm just kind of curious about that because I'm looking at it from the terms of, I guess, in a sort of lefty way of thinking about things is like looking at it in terms of what sort of structures and systems could we create that will promote like social revolution and just transform the ways in which people engage with one another and interact with one another, you know? Hopefully that question made sense. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense, but it's really hard to get proper 
not even data, but just because right now, of course, I see the people who already know that they want it, so they will already be kind of ready and ripe for it. I guess in my community, I know, for example, we had a person I remember who was constantly breaking rounds, constantly. <laughs> but over the years, I just got, got less and less, and she became a better listener, so that was definitely something. I notice I've changed a ton, but it's also hard to say what was sociocracy, what was all the other things that happened, right? So it's not not easy to get a clear set on that one, because for many people, it's kind of a transition into more alignment with their own purpose, more integrity, more this whole thing about being a more whole self. I remember that struck me in the beginning, actually. There's something interesting that happened and just that this kind of job required for me to show up as myself the entire time, basically. Like I couldn't really hide as much anymore, I want to say. And to me, this kind of stirred up all kinds of stuff, honestly. Not all pretty, right? For example, I remember, I don't know if I said that. No, I didn't say that. But I gender transitioned the last few years. And that was, I think, also the reason I could not simply ignore that anymore was also just because of being asked or kind of be the expectation of being your whole self more of the time or more of your whole self, I want to say, more of the time. Maybe let's say it very cautiously. Yeah, I don't know. It's become Then it becomes really a spiritual thing almost, right? And I know for many people, that I, like I'm not a very spiritual person at all. <laughs> Actually, people make fun of me for that, honestly. So, but I do see that people, yeah, that for people, learning sociocracy for them is part of kind of a journey that they're on. But it's how much is it cause? How much is it affect? I do not know. I, sorry, I can't say. Wow, no, that's great. Yeah, I can see why that will be, you know, hard to quantify, but that's really beautiful. And I think that for us on the left who, you know, truly want, you know, a new world who wants social revolution in all the ways it can look. I really do think like it is about removing all the barriers that keep people from really being their whole and true selves and bringing that to the table and being and allowing that to be a part of the collective process. You know, so I, that's really, really beautiful. LaCase, Glenn, do y'all have any more questions at all? Or No, I just am so grateful to Ted for coming on. I feel like I've learned so much and really hope to find a way to implement this in my own life with my circle. So yeah, thank you very much, Ted. This is wonderful. Yeah, I can make this episode go for two hours, so I'm good. We can stop here. I'm really <laughs> interested in a lot of these concepts, and I definitely would love to pick Ted's brain again at some point and maybe have them on to talk about some more of these ideas a little further. That would be really cool. But it was really cool having you on, Ted. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your interest, all three of you. <laughs> I feel like there was a lot of, I don't know. Yeah, but maybe that's, yeah, those are all questions that really interest me. So it was really close to all the things that I think about a lot, but I think that are hard to get to definite answers to. Maybe having definite answers is not the point, right? Yeah, but I enjoyed this. Thank you. Yes, Ted, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. I think this really important concept and just, you know, with the work that you do, just, you know, giving people a different, just giving people a different vision and practices for how we can do life together. I think that's really extremely important in the political moment that we are all in. But before we jump off, Ted, could you plug 
whatever sort of resources or websites or whatever resources we can give to people to get educated on these concepts and just everything that Sociocracy for All is doing? Sure. So Sociocracy for All, the website is sociocracyforall.org. And the main things that we do is just all the stuff that you'll find on the website. We have a mailing list where we keep people informed about upcoming events and new articles and so on. And um, there are two books right now. One is really a kind of a manual. So it reads like a manual too. Somebody recently told me they read it too far asleep. But it is, so it is a manual. That's the warning. It's not something that's kind of meant to, like, yeah, a reference book about sociocracy. It's called Many Voices, One Song. I'm still very proud of the title, as I have to say, you know, because when we sing, we actually are used to, like, multi-part harmonies, kind of, right? Where everybody sings something different, but you're singing the same song. What's, that's what an organization is, right? Everybody's doing their little thing, their part. It's all different, but together it sounds awesome. And that's, anyway, that metaphor really, really works for me. So Many Voices, One Song, reference book about sociocracy. Then Who Decides, Who Decides is the book that I was talking about how to start a group. Like how do you start from session one really in a clean way with integrity to spread power from the get-go. Let's see. The other one is, yeah, training. So on the training tab on our website, we do a lot of training around consent, decision-making, a lot of immersion training that's quite fun so that for people who want to just feel what it's like to be part of a sociocratic organization, what we do is we basically do like this pop-up organization for 10 weeks where people join a circle and then they do stuff and they are a part of that group of 16-ish people that are working together so that you can get like the first first-hand experience of that. Because in my experience, all this stuff kind of when it's intellectual, that's all interesting, but it really becomes interesting when you're in it and when you feel it with your body and you live it with the people that you talk to and so on. That's when it comes alive. So that's why we really like our immersion training. But we'll find that on our training page. Awesome. Awesome. Dope. Thank you for those plugs. Again, this was a pleasure. This was a pleasure. I, I really hope that people listen to this episode and just start to really just expand their imaginations and recognize there is just a different way of doing fucking life together outside of just these quote unquote democratic models and whatnot that seem to be so often failing us. But again, Ted, thank you so much for coming on. Everyone, this has been A Thousand Cuts, another episode of A Thousand Cuts, a BSA podcast. Y'all know where to find us. Spotify, okay? Apple Podcasts, okay? And SoundCloud, the SoundCloud. All of the episodes are back up. We got everything renewed. And yeah, this has been... Another episode, I'm your host, Demetrius, here with my comrades and co-hosts of Case and Glenn, and we will see y'all next time. Love, peace, solidarity. Take care.